Please do turn back to our passage this evening. 1 John, chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. How do I know that I am a Christian? Can you be sure that you're a Christian? I've been going on summer camps, Christian camps, um, for a number of years. Used to go on them as a child um, and more recently helped as an officer. And during the week, often there's a time to ask questions. And more often than not, this is a question that's asked. How can I be sure that I'm a Christian? It's an important question to ask. And I think it shows one of the big issues that we have in the Christian life, the issue of assurance. If we've heard anything of Christianity, we know that we're in deep need of saving because of our sin and the judgment that we deserve from God. We understand that it's vital that we're saved from our sin. And so surely that's why we want to know that we have been saved, to be sure of it. This is the theme of the passage that we're looking at tonight. John is writing to Christians. We're not told where, but he's writing to urge them to keep going in their faith. These Christians are in danger of being led astray by false teaching. And John describes some of that false teaching in the letter. He calls these people antichrists because they're teaching that Jesus wasn't the savior. They're saying that we can live as we want, that we can make little of holiness. These people think that they know God and claim that their knowledge is enough, that they can live as they want because of grace. Now, John wants the church and us to be sure of what we know about Jesus, to be firm in our faith and to continue to live it out. And we see John write the very reason that he's writing to this church in chapter 5, verse 13. He says, These things I've written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life, and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. So tonight we're going to look at what it means to be a Christian, what the life of a Christian looks like, and find that there's hope for us even when we fail. If you're a believer, my prayer is that this would challenge you and draw you nearer to Jesus in full assurance. And if you're not a Christian, my hope is that you'll see what a Christian is, and you'll see how you can know Jesus for yourself. So firstly, how do I know that I'm a Christian? Are you trusting in the blood of Jesus? The first thing I want us to look at is in verse 2. He, that's Jesus, is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. This verse is describing Jesus as the propitiation for sin. But what does that mean? Propitiation isn't a word that we use, is it? The NIV translates the phrase as a sacrifice of atonement, which is helpful, but it still gives us another big word, atonement, to try and grasp. Propitiation means a sacrifice that bears God's wrath and turns it to favour. And that sort of language should make us think of the Old Testament and the sacrifices required by God's people. If we were to look at Leviticus, we'd see God setting out the process for priests to offer sacrifice to different kinds in different circumstances. And there's a phrase that's repeated again and again. The priest shall make atonement for him for his sin and he shall be forgiven. 
depending on what you'd done or uh, a different animal or way of offering the animal was necessary. And that animal was killed. Its blood was shed. It was messy, but it meant the sin was forgiven. The sin of the people would be covered by the blood of the animal. And we saw that word atonement again in, in that verse from Leviticus. Now, apparently, William Tyndale, as he translated the Bible, made up the word atonement because he struggled to find a word that was adequate to say what the original text meant. We could read it as at one if we took it apart. It means to make a relationship at one again or to make it right again by reconciliation. You see, sin cannot mix with God. It cuts us off from him. It separates us from him. The Bible says we're enemies of God because of our sin. And John uses other words to show this contrast. He speaks about light and dark. God is light, sin is darkness. He refers to truth and lies. God is truth, sin is lies. They're two helpful images, aren't they? Because you can't have the two together, no matter how hard you try. Our sinful nature and our sinful actions separate us from God. That's what we've seen since the first man and woman, when they sinned in the garden, breaking the relationship between God and man, being thrown out of his presence in the Garden of Eden. In the garden, that meant the death of an animal was necessary to cover the shame of Adam and Eve. Genesis 3.21 says that God made garments of skin for them. So blood was shed to cover the shame of sin. And we've already thought about the Jewish people who had sacrifices of animals. As the blood of the animals was shed, they could know forgiveness. Hebrews 9.22 tells us that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. Romans 6.23 tells us that the wages of sin is death. Sin can't be ignored. It demands a just consequence. God's anger at sin is wholly justified because he is holy. Sin is serious. It's not safe. That's why the cost of sin is so weighty. Death, bloodshed. However, God is just and merciful, angry at sin and loving in providing a remedy. He provides a means for forgiveness, something to bear his anger or wrath in our place. For the Israelites, the shed blood of animals brought temporary peace with God. For us, though, we have a far greater sacrifice, the Lord Jesus himself. When John calls Jesus the propitiation for our sins, he's saying that by the shed blood of Jesus on the cross, we can know lasting reconciliation, at one moment, a restored relationship with God. This is what it means to be a Christian. The Christian hasn't done anything to earn God's forgiveness, but pleads in the shed blood of Jesus. And John goes on to say that this propitiation is not an exclusive one. Christianity is not for one special type of people, for one nation. No, it's for the whole world. And John's not saying that at the end of the day, all people are saved. God loves everyone and has forgiven everyone. No, if you look back to chapter 1, verses 8 to 10, John is clear that sin is in everyone and forgiveness comes only by confessing sin 
and trusting in Jesus. He even says that claiming to be forgiven when still walking in darkness or in sin is a lie. So no, John isn't preaching a universal gospel, but instead he's explaining that God's forgiveness is not limited to one people group. No longer is it just the Jewish people who are God's chosen people. Jesus' death was the propitiation for the sins of the whole world. So that's good news for me and for you. It means that we should tear down any barriers we have, whether consciously or unconsciously, that prevent us from sharing the gospel with others. We should be careful not to think of Christianity just for people like us, whatever that means, whether it's our status, our backgrounds, what we look like, where we live, where we're from. All kinds of people from all nations who confess their sin and trust in the shed blood of Jesus for forgiveness will be reconciled to God. The blood of Jesus is what cleanses us from sin. It is the righteousness that we claim that restores our relationship with God. Are you trusting in Jesus' blood shed for you on the cross? Are you trusting in it for your reconciliation with God? If that is what makes someone a Christian, then what does it mean for the Christian life then? What does it look like? Well, that brings us to our second point. How do I know that I'm a Christian? Are you walking with Jesus in obedience and love? John moves on to speak of the signs of someone being a follower of Jesus. And he gives us three tests so that we can be sure of being a Christian. John is certain that we can be sure of our salvation. That's what he says. And we've looked at it already in chapter five. It's the very reason he writes. John has written to this church for them to be certain of their hope so that they'll continue in the faith. And these three tests that John gives flow together and we'll look at each of them briefly. But before we do, I want to be clear that this passage is not saying that we become Christians by doing these things. We've already seen that the propitiation is through Jesus' blood only. No, this is John telling Christians who are struggling with doubts about whether they're saved that they can be certain. If we're honest with ourselves, it's something that we've all felt at one time or another, whether we felt we've lost our salvation because of falling into sin or whether we just feel insecure. There'll be times in our Christian walk when we will doubt. So we should thank God that these verses are here in his words to show us how we can be assured and to remind us where our hope lies. So the first test is keeping his commands. Have a look at verse three. Now, by this, we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. Here, John echoes the call of Jesus in the Gospel of John in chapter 14, verse 15, where Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commandments. Obedience shows that we know and love him. What does it mean to know Jesus? Well, there's a difference, isn't there, between knowing of someone and knowing someone. You can have knowledge of a sports person or an actor or a historic figure. You might know all about the way they lived, or you might know their likes and their dislikes. You might know about their past. You might know their family. You might know their achievements. But unless you have a real relationship with them, you don't know them. It's just one-sided head knowledge. 
I know my wife, Harriet, because I've spent time with her. I've spoken with her. I've listened to her. I've lived with her. I know her and she knows me. It goes both ways and it involves head and heart. To know is personal, it's intimate and it's deep. And it means there's a relationship. For the Christian, the relationship with God has already been restored by the blood of Jesus. The cross of Christ has meant that we can know God and be known by him. It means the reversal of the curse of sin. We're no longer cut off from God, but are accepted as sons and daughters. Rejoice in knowing that you have this relationship with God through Jesus and let your joy turn to obedience. Live holy lives, denying sin, rejecting the darkness and living in the light. Chapter 1 verse 9 tells us how we are saved, but it also describes how we're to go on. To go on as those brought out of darkness into the light. And so that means bringing our sin into the light, exposing it and turning from it, living in obedience to God. You see, the false teachers among this church claimed that they had knowledge of God, so didn't need to live in obedience. They thought that legalistic and instead said that living in the love of God is to be free to do as we want. And isn't that something that we've heard from people claiming to be Christians? That we're free to live like the world around us because we know God? No, we must be careful if we hear these things. James reminds us in his letter in chapter 2, verses 14 to 26, that our faith is joined to the outworking of that in our deeds. James even says that faith on its own, without works, is actually dead. Obedience coming from trust in Jesus is the mark of a true Christian, and it is loving. We know that in our earthly relationships, don't we? It's not revolutionary. We should be careful to avoid seeing it as legalism, to shy away from obedience. Think about a parent and a child. The child who loves their parent obeys them. Or a marriage. How do you know someone loves their husband or wife? You know that the spouse loves their husband or wife by keeping their vows and faithfulness. The Christian who loves Jesus keeps his commands and obeys. The second test that, that John gives us here is walking like Jesus. By this we know that we are in him. He who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walked. Verses five and six. If we know Jesus and known by him and are now in relationship with God, this test flows from that. Walk like Jesus. It's a biblical pattern of faith that we see in the lives of Enoch, Noah, Abraham, and through many other heroes of the faith. Enoch walked with God and was taken from this world, Genesis 5. Noah walked with God, Genesis 6. As the law was given to the Israelites in Deuteronomy, they're commanded to walk in God's ways. And John's already talked about walking in the light in the first chapter of his letter, saying that to walk like Jesus is to walk in the light. So how does John describe walking in the light? Well, he says that the light can't have any darkness in it. We know that to be true, don't we? When you switch on a light bulb, the light isn't patchy, only coming from parts of the bulb 
or only catching sections of a room. No, it shines out from the source into every corner. To walk in the light means to expose the darkness. We had Tim Payne here a few weeks ago, didn't we? And he gave us a really helpful picture of moths and bats. Bats escape the light. They go back into the darkness. But moths come into the light. They're drawn to it. They move closer to the source, being fully exposed. The Christian is a moth moving ever closer to the source of light. And chapter 1, verse 5 tells us who the source is. It's God himself. Now, walking is active, isn't it? It takes effort to move. It's not something we can do passively. It means there's progress as well. Some of you might know my brother. Uh, He's preached here in the past. um, And you might know he's gone to live in Italy. Um, He and his family moved to Italy about a year ago uh, to work with Christians in Italy. But as part of that move, he's had to learn Italian and to increase his understanding of the language. And one way that he started doing that recently is by meeting up with uh, a couple of friends to walk together. And as they walk, they speak in Italian. As he walks and talks with these people, he grows in his knowledge of Italian and he uh, understands the language deeper and he grows more like those he's walking with, those who speak it. For us, as we read God's word and see Jesus in it, as we spend time with God in prayer, we'll grow in our understanding and our likeness to him. But it can't be rushed. It takes time and effort. You'll need to make the time for it. It'll be a commitment, but it'll be worthwhile. We'll grow in holiness with each step we take with Jesus, walking in obedience, in the light, exposing sin. The Christian life isn't one of a false pretense, claiming that we're good or appearing nice. No, it's active pursuance of living the life that God calls us to live, obeying him, as we've already seen, but being honest about our shortcomings at the same time. It means putting sin to death as it's revealed and turning to Jesus for forgiveness by his blood, not trying to cover up our sin or push it back into the darkness to be hidden. Walking with Jesus and walking like Jesus means striving to live holy lives, to live lives that look like Jesus. It also means returning to the cross again and again for forgiveness as God shows us more of our sin. Jesus is our example. He's shown us what it's like to live a life of full obedience to God. So follow his example. The third test then that John gives is loving our brothers and sisters. Have a look at verses 9 and 10. He who says he's in the light and hates his brother is in darkness until now. He who loves his brother abides in the light and there is no cause for stumbling in him. This is the first test that has to do with other Christians. John is saying that to walk in the light means to walk in love for our brother. Who is our brother? Our fellow believer. If you don't feel too uncomfortable, look to your left, look to your right. It's those you're sat amongst at the moment. These are your brothers and sisters. Do you love them? And this is nothing new, just as John says. Again, in the Gospel of John, 
uh, in chapter 13 and verses 34 and 35, Jesus says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. John is echoing a command of Jesus here, the command that Jesus has already given us. And it's part of the second test of walking like Jesus. Jesus has loved us, so we too should love one another. Our love will be a witness to others, and it should be seen by people as unique about what a Christian is. Do you think when people look at us as a church, that they think, wow, what a group of people who love each other? Have you ever taken a moment to stop and actively think, how can I love my brother or sister this week? I think we're often good at this, responding to particular needs as a church when they're highlighted. For me, I felt so well loved as a student in the meals that so many of you cooked for me. But I know that if I'm honest with myself, there are times that I've also thought, I know a brother or sister needs help, but it would just be too hard for me to help them. Or times when actually I think my own needs are more important. Someone else can help. I also think that it's, I, I also think far more often about how I can love the brother or sister that I find easy to talk to or that I have things in common with rather than those that I don't. John says here, if we claim to love our brother but actually hate them, we're still in darkness. It's the light and the dark. Our love and hate cannot exist together if we are saying we are walking in the light. Walking with Jesus in love means there's no room for hatred, no matter what that looks like, if it's obvious or well hidden. So how can we know that we are a Christian? Three tests. Obey, walk, love. Are you submitting to God in your life, in your decisions, in your desires, in your time that you spend? Are you walking with Jesus? Are you spending time with him regularly, meaningful time? Are you trying to look more like him? Are you loving your brothers and sisters, even when it's hard, even when it's costly, even when it's a sacrifice? Well, by the grace of God, we should see these things in our life. But moving on to our third point. How do I know that I'm a Christian? Are you returning to the cross to find grace when you fail? How do you feel having looked at those tests of a Christian? Has it assured you of your faith? It's a challenge to us because so often we don't obey. We don't walk like Jesus and we fail to love one another. But the good news is that there is hope for us when we get it wrong. When we still fall short and fail to do what God's told us in his word, there is hope. Look back at the start of the passage we had read. My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Note the tone of John as he writes. He's speaking to his dear children in the faith. This is personal, close, affectionate, as he urges them to refuse the empty promises of sin. It's not an abrupt, don't sin. It's a warm, I'm writing this, that you won't sin. As we've looked at these tests of a Christian, they're not there to beat us over the head with, to enforce the rules of the faith, saying, fall in line. 
No, my hope is that these tests will have rekindled your desire to serve your saviour. That it's been a reminder of what it means to live in the light and that it would encourage you to go and do it. But John's a realist here too, isn't he? He recognises that we'll not always reject sin. John knows that even as those walking in the light, walking with Jesus, that we will mess up. But thankfully, John doesn't let us dwell on that, dwelling on our weaknesses and self-pity. No, he points us back to where our hope truly lies. Our hope is not in ourselves. It's in Jesus Christ, the righteous. And we learn three more truths about who Jesus is here. He's our advocate with the Father. He is Christ and he is righteous. So firstly, then, we see Jesus is our advocate with the Father. The word advocate is something that we might associate with a courtroom. An advocate is someone who acts on another person's behalf, who speaks up for their defence. In a court, you might have a barrister working with you, making your case for innocence to a judge. They present the truth about whatever's led you to court and why you're innocent. But when John describes Jesus as an advocate, he's saying that Jesus acts in this way, going between us and God. Jesus is the one who gives our defense to the Father. Now, John doesn't mean that Jesus is saying all the good things we've ever done and trying to convince God the Father that he should let us off the hook. John doesn't claim our, uh, Jesus doesn't claim our innocence either. We know that would be wrong. No, Jesus is reminding the Father of his blood shed on the cross and pleads his sacrifice as grounds for our forgiveness. There's a hymn by Charles Wesley. I'm going to read some verses from it now about Jesus as our advocate. He ever lives above for me to intercede. His all-redeeming love, his precious blood to plead. His blood was shed for all our race and sprinkles now the throne of grace. Five bleeding wounds he bears, received on Calvary. They pour effectual prayers. They strongly speak for me. Forgive him, oh, forgive, they cry, nor let that ransom sinner die. The father hears him pray, his dear anointed one. He cannot turn away the presence of his son. His spirit answers to the blood and tells me I am born of God. To God I'm reconciled. His pardoning voice I hear. He owns me for his child. I can no longer fear. With confidence I now draw nigh. And Father, Abba, Father, cry. When we turn to God in repentance, we're not alone, but we have the risen Jesus on our side and can go boldly to confess our sins and be sure of forgiveness and the welcome as a child of God. So be quick to repent. Be quick to come before the Father in confidence through Jesus. Is there anything you're holding on to that you're too worried to confess to Jesus? Bring it to him tonight. He's your advocate. His blood will plead for you to be forgiven. His mercy is sure. And secondly, we see Jesus is Christ. Now, this is particularly important for the original readers of the letter. Christ means Messiah, Savior, King. Here, John is speaking directly against those who'd been spreading false teaching about Jesus by saying he was not the Christ, denying him as Messiah. John is explicit about the person of Jesus, that he was man and God, that he came to save, 
He was the one promised by the prophets. If we don't grasp who Jesus truly is, our faith is in vain. We're not trusting in ourselves, but the promised saviour, King Jesus. And thirdly, John tells us that Jesus is the righteous. What's significant here? Well, we looked earlier at Jesus, our propitiation, didn't we? We're cleansed by the blood of Jesus, but only because he was a perfect sacrifice. In his humanity, he did not sin, but remained spotless. If he weren't, his sacrifice wouldn't be enough. And he's made an exchange with us, swapping his spotless life for ours that are filthy and ruined by sin. But see also that as Jesus is righteous, he does not call us to live a life that he hasn't first been through himself. He knows what it is to be tempted. He knows the frustrations of each day. He knows what it's like to be tired. But that was no excuse for him to sin. Jesus remained faithful to God in his righteousness. With him as our example, that's how we're to live. Last year, there was uproar, wasn't there? When the politicians demanding us to stay at home during COVID lockdowns didn't live up to the standards that they'd set themselves. Jesus isn't like that. He doesn't hypocritically ask those who follow him to do anything that he hasn't first done himself. He doesn't call us to any standard different to that of his own. We're called to be righteous because he is righteous. So how can you be sure that you're a Christian? Christian, I hope that when you examine yourself, you see the ways that God has begun his work of sanctification in you. You see the ways that you've grown in obedience and likeness to him and your love for other believers. Why don't we put this into practice by loving one another and pointing out those things in each other, reminding one another where our hope is. But when we see that we don't match up to those standards, when we see that we fall short again, let's turn again to Jesus, the righteous. Trust in his shed blood, which pleads for you. Worship him as king for his love and mercy and go on seeking to walk in the light with him. If you're not following Jesus yet, don't you want this kind of assurance for yourself to know that you're forgiven, that you've been reconciled to the maker of all things? Why not come to Jesus, the advocate tonight? Find forgiveness in his death for your sin and start walking with him in the light. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for what we see of Jesus in your word and what we've seen this evening. We thank you that Jesus is uh, the righteous king, that he is spotless and perfect. Uh, we thank you that he is the one who was promised and that came to die for us in our place. We thank you that his blood was shed, that we might be forgiven. And so I pray that you would encourage our hearts um, by remembering what Jesus has done for us. And that by your spirit, we would live in the light of that, that we would walk in obedience to Jesus, in love for our brothers and sisters. Lord, help us to do this. Uh, we can't do it in our own strength, but only with your help. And we pray these things now in your name. Amen. <laughs>